Welcome to another episode of Live Booleans. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Alex. Alex, how you hey doing? everybody. I'm good. How you doing, Costa? Good, good. Today we're joined by James Marshall. James, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. So James, his career spans film, TV, online video, mobile games, VFX, virtual reality development. Uh, most recently, James finished a two-year stint in the South Australian Government's Department for Trade and Investment as Business Development Manager for the Creative Industries. And James is currently balancing his roles as Managing Director of Golden Age Studios and Head of Studio at CDW Studios, as well as sitting on various, uh, various uh, advisory panels, including IGEA and others. James, that's that sum it up. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's the summary. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> So tell us, uh, as we always do, as we always start with our guests, where'd you begin? Um, looking looking at your roles, looks like you started sort of blending into games from other media-related roles. Yeah. Um, yeah. Get into it if yeah. you want. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess I'll give you the long story and you can edit it down. <laughs> uh, but when I was a kid, I always loved video games and movies, um, of course, and books. Um, and initially I wanted to be a writer. Um, but in order to be a, re- a writer, you have to spend like large numbers of hours in front of a screen by yourself and actually put words down. And it turns out I wasn't very good at that part of it. So um, uh, so I decided to, to step sideways, get into script writing, which is same but shorter, uh, from there into writing, uh, producing and directing. Um, and yeah, so I went to uh, to Griffith Film School in Brisbane and did a bachelor's of screen production. Most of that time, I was a producer, but I also directed some stuff. Um, but I was also really interested in uh, social media, such as it was back then. And I'm talking like like MySpace. Um, that was really interesting for me. Um, and I started experimenting around with. I thought it'd be cool to just to just screw with people online um, because I was young and in uni and that's kind of what you do. Uh, setting up fake accounts, um, you know, playing with um, with like fake short stories, winning fake awards and, and putting things up there that made it look uh, sort of making fun of the, um, the established successful arts film industry, which is very much what it was at the time. Um, anyway, for whatever reason, I... After I finished undergrad, I got into uh, postgrad at uh, AFTRS in Sydney. So we moved from Brisbane to study that. Um, and again, I just kept trying to think of different ways to do things. I think I was probably the first afters project. You know, they, they give you a budget to shoot on film for your project. Um, I shot on an iPhone uh, and, um, and like fed into old VHS tapes that had all this digital noise and stuff in them. Um, anyway, the stuff that I was doing was a bit weird, involved social media. Uh, Yahoo 7 thought it was interesting, so they asked me to come on there as a um, – the, my title was Transmedia Producer at Yahoo 7, which was awesome because um, it sounded really, really cool. Uh, but my actual job was like I was a low-paid um, editor for online video, uh, working on Sunrise and X Factor and – um, home and away, a whole bunch of other shit that I really hated. Um, <laughs> and occasionally I get to work on Doctor Who or something, which, hey. which was all right. 
Yeah, except that the job was to literally go through Doctor Who and insert ad breaks into it. So it was like, <laughs> it's, it's like we could make the most money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like being the the guy in the comic book shop that has to tear out artwork and stick in. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it wasn't a good feeling there either. But um, but you know, it paid the bills, which uh, which was very concerning at the time. Um. But, uh, but, yeah, I kept pushing on the side. So I was freelance, um, but I was still doing like 60, 70-hour weeks at, at Yahoo 7. Um, on the side, I was trying to run uh, games. We started a, a tactical, you know, turn-based game with a, a friend uh, and a group of friends. We got up to like tabletop testing with it. You know, all the, the rules had been written out and everything like that. Uh, but none of us had any actual uh, programming or art skill. So, uh, so that was a problem. Um, <laughs> but it taught me a lot. Uh, and at the same time I was doing, I did like consultancy work for this AI group in the U S um, which was interesting and led me talking to patent lawyers at one point. Um, and then a patent lawyer introduced me to a guy who became my business partner in a mobile games studio, making uh, children's content for the NRL. So uh, Medita games, it was called, and we had one game, um, that was released, which was an anti-bullying shark, uh, anti-bullying app, sorry, for the Cronulla Sharks. Um, it was like a little animated uh, storybook and um, goal kick game um, before that whole business sort of fell over sideways uh, for, for reasons I probably won't go into right now. Um, but at the same time, uh, virtual reality was becoming a thing that existed, um, whereas previously it had been like a theory. Uh, and, and the commercial side of it and the demand for content was starting to, to, to show, or at least we thought it was going to show. Um, but it turned out I was one of the only producers in Australia who had experience with both uh, software uh, development, um, game theory, and video production and codecs and all the other sort of stuff that went into it and understood producing and directing. So, um, so that made me a bit of a rare fish, which was good because I was able to charge them a lot of money um, <laughs> what year was this roughly? Uh, what year was that? That was 2014. Okay. I think around then, 2013. Yeah, it was whenever, like. That's very early, hey? That's like when Oculus, when the first Oculus, like, just, just, like rolled yeah. out or around there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was getting into it when Oculus got bought by Facebook. Um, I remember that happening. Uh, I remember trying the old like DK1, uh, which was the first Oculus headset, and then working their way up. Uh, by the time I finished, they were releasing the Vive Pro, was the latest headset. Mm. And uh, I know at one point we were in talks to be a launch title on the, the Vive Pro for a, a project I was working on. Um, but that was a great job. Um, it was a young startup. Uh, the people in it were very um, smart and and they were either cool or they were cool in a nerdy way, you know what I mean? Um a couple of them were actually like legitimately cool. I don't know where they came from, but um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I learned a lot. We worked with good clients, so I ran a, the account for Qantas for a little while. Um, worked with you know University of Technology Sydney. I had one trip that sent me uh, flying into Bordeaux to stay on a luxury cruise ship and and, sh- and shoot a three sixty tour of a, a cruise liner, um, which was nice. Uh, and then we also did our own IP projects as well. So the big one I was involved in there uh, was called Awake, and that involved we did deals with um, UTA, the talent agency in LA. We were shooting at 
Microsoft headquarters in Seattle using their new volumetric capture stage. We're like the third project in the world to shoot on that stage. Yeah, right. uh, David Attenborough was in there the week before we were. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and that was very cool. Billy Corkin came in immediately after. Um, oh, wow. so, so, you know, that was really amazing. But we partnered with um, Animal Logic. We're supplying um, 3D assets to us. Uh, and, you know, we got sponsorship from NVIDIA and from uh, Wacom and uh, Screen Australia chipped in a bit. Um, so there are a lot of players involved in that particular uh, project, and I was producer of the project um, as well as assistant director and extra. I'm, I'm in the project as like a volumetrically captured um, henchman uh, who, who I realised afterwards really needed to lose weight. But... Um, <laughs> It was a really good project. Uh, we pivoted as a studio from un, from Unity to Unreal, uh, specifically because of the the ray tracing capabilities um, that we thought we were going to be able to get into, and, and we did. But by the time we figured out how to do it, I think Unity got caught up as well. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that project premiered at South by Southwest. It was invited to Cannes March to Film. Uh, it was nominated for the best VR of the year, up against like Vader Immortal. Um, and went to MIF and a bunch of other places. So that was that was cool. Uh, but, like, it was sort of – it was way over budget. There was no way that, that, um, that the business model for that kind of content made any sense at that point. Like, I thought the project was supposed to be uh, a marketing exercise for the studio to demonstrate what we're capable of and hopefully draw more investment and allow us to dig further into it. Um, but that's not necessarily what everybody in the business thought was the point of the project. Um, and yeah, and, and it was a startup, so it was going through some, some bumps, um, all of which it's come through, you know, bright and shiny now, but, uh, but I also didn't want to live in Sydney anymore. Uh, my wife and I decided we wanted to raise the kids somewhere else. Adelaide came to the top of the list for a bunch of really weird reasons, but, um, but it very much did come to the top of the list after a couple of bottles of wine. And, uh, and the next morning, um, Technicolor announced starting a VFX studio in Adelaide. Oh, yeah. So I was like, oh, well, I'll just call the head of the studio in Montreal <laughs> and ask for a job. Um, and I did. <laughs> and she said, what the hell am I supposed to do with a VR producer? Um, she didn't say that, but I could I could, I could hear it in, in Lauren's tone. Uh, but they did offer me a job. Uh, running Technicolor Academy, uh, which was an interesting 12-month stint, um, at the end of which I could have worked on cats, potentially. Yeah. <laughs> um, and instead, I decided to go and work for the state government. So so I just want I want everyone to know that you could see the problems in cats in the rushes. <laughs> that didn't come from the VFX studio. Um, and, yeah, and yeah I, it was less than two years in state government. It was like 18 months. Um, I was not quite counting the days, but it was pretty close. Yeah. Um, I kind of wanted to quit after like four months, but then COVID set in and uh, and suddenly a stable state government job looked pretty cushy. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I stayed there. And, you know, we still did. The state government job was interesting, but um, we did some potentially some good things. Um, and I think I stopped some not good things. So... So that's good. Uh, but, yeah, I was very keen to get out. So when Simon offered me um, to come on board and help CDW Studios grow, mm. I'd, like, jumped all over it. And, of course, the whole time, like the last two and a half years or so, I've been um, working with Ants to get Golden Age up and running. Um, and by working with, I mean 
they send me screenshots and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. (laughs) I'll I'll find a a publisher and investor at some point, I promise. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which is, you know, that's my my contribution or lack thereof to the studio at this stage. Uh, When you would come into the office, because when I was working out of the same office as Ants, you still command that same respect, that that producer, (laughs) director kind of role. Maybe oh, it was that's, the suit. Maybe it was the tie. That's, yeah, that, it's nice. It's nice. Yeah, that the suit jackets are um, uh, a fairly new addition, but it was sort of yeah, I wanted to be taken more seriously. A VR didn't get any respect. I mean, coming up through like as a filmmaker, a wannabe filmmaker gets no respect from anyone, and probably quite rightfully so. Um, <laughs> but then a filmmaker that was pivoting into games, like all my film friends were like, what are you doing there? And, yeah. and the games people knew, I, I didn't know shit. So, uh, so I got no respect from anybody there. <laughs> um, and then um, funding bodies, like when I wanted to do genre films, they were all about kitchen sink Aussie drama. And then by the time they'd come around to, to science fiction, which is my passion, I'd pivoted into games and they never came around to games. Mm. Um even to do the uh, the pitch document for the virtual reality project, uh, which was cinematic VR, like it's it's very low on the end of um, interactivity. It's it's very much, you know, Hollywood actors um, and, and Nicholas Hope who played Bad Boy Bubby, uh, and you're in the room with them. But it's it's cinema. It's just in a different format. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I had to go through the the submission documents to government and take out the word game which meant I had to refer to Unreal as an interactive physics engine, like doing a fine replacement. It's so stupid. Um, but, yeah, oh no, if it says game, we can't find it. Like, oh yeah, all right, um, yeah. fine. Well, that's the thing, right? Yeah. So you, you, you had all that in, in your head going into working for state government. What, <laughs> what was it you went in and either thought you could change or wanted to change in order to open up those opportunities? There was something, so my director was Gavin Arts, um, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but he said something in the interview to me because, I mean, they asked me to come in for a meeting and a couple other people hinted, oh, you're, you're exactly what they're looking for and they're very hard to find. People understand games, VFX and uh, film production. Um and, you know, I appreciate music and other sectors as well, but they're the ones the government's interested in terms of the economy. Um, but I went in for this meeting expecting a very polite, look, I'm flattered, but I don't know why I'm here and no thank you. I'm not interested in the government. Um, Gavin said I could do pretty much anything I wanted, you know, within the law as long as it grew the sector. And the only people that could stop me would be a member of cabinet or the premier. And that sounded like fun. (laughs) So I jumped at that. Um, And then, yeah, four months later, I realized it's not fun. Uh, Plenty of other people can stop you. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, would you, what what was it like sort of, tell me, you know, talk to me about what was it like being in those sort of situations where you wanted to do this thing to change or to add value and then you were blocked. Like what was the feeling you had there? So, I'm just sorry about any background noise. My daughter is moving balloons around. Oh, that's fine. We'll find a way to animate that into something. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I know it's her bedroom, but 
<laughs> anyway, um, government was real weird. Uh, I'm going to speak really bluntly and, uh, yeah, there are a lot of people in government who do not care about the state. They don't care about anybody else. They care about working, you know, nine to five dot to dot only and taking their pension and going home at the end of the day. Um, someone described uh, the state government to me as a daycare for grown-ups. Um, <laughs> and, and they weren't far wrong. Um, there is... <laughs> <laughs> that said, there are still there's a lot of people trying to do good things, but the bureaucracy itself, like the mechanisms and the way that it functions, is inherently stupid. Um, it's it's it was archaic when it was written, uh, and then you get a whole bunch of daycare grown-ups in there trying to actually put this stuff into practical application, and none of it works. Um, and the people whose jobs it are. They, they don't even know what they're really supposed to be doing, so they just keep regurgitating the same stuff over again. It's like yeah. it's like watching cows chew cud. Um, <laughs> and at the same time, you're like, yeah, but if we could all just move in this direction, they're like, what are you doing? Like, Yeah. We, yeah, it, it was, yeah. You're going to blow it for us. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that was, I never got the feeling anyone thought I was going to blow anything for them. Um, I just, it was like they, they didn't understand what I was saying. It's like, no, we have to move, like, we have, to, we have to move now, otherwise we're going to have a very, very bumpy ride. I felt like like an early stage climate scientist, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just looking at <laughs> the you data. like, but the, the, the earth is big. It's like, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld has that line in one of the Comedians in Cars episodes and he's talking about, uh, I think, you know, people who work behind the scenes on film, but it's the same as government, which is, the job doesn't matter. It's all to facilitate the meetings. The meetings are <laughs> what they really care about. Yeah. Everything else yeah. is just made up. Yeah. Yeah. There's that thing of like, this meeting should have been an email or this email should have been a phone call. Um, mm. But eventually in government, it's like, well, this phone call should not be happening. Like, I, yeah, you, know, yeah. <laughs> you do not need to talk <laughs> yeah. to me. I don't need to talk to you. Um, yeah. I, I saw on more than one occasion, they were trying to get, trying to get companies that didn't meet any of the basic requirements to apply for uh, this this program that they had on. Um, and they tried several times. I mean, they tried several times when I was doing it with Technicolor. It's like, oh, you should come in and talk about, you know, this thing. It's like, but we don't qualify for that. Like, I looked at the guidelines. We don't qualify for that. And when I first arrived, I was like, but if you really want me to come in, I'll come in for a meeting. And you go to like three of these and you're like, I'm never taking a meeting with government again. I, I don't understand what the problem is. There. But... Public service has no respect for the private sector's time, um, and uh, and a lot of them have got key metrics to meet, which involve how many people applied for the program. So they'll just yeah. encourage you to apply for stuff. Yeah. Um, same thing in reverse. It's like the games rebate. If people don't apply for it, it will disappear because if people aren't applying for it, they assume that it's not necessary. It's not wanted. And that's a that's worth mentioning. That was something you helped bring through. Was the games rebate. Um, yep. So you did manage to get something. <laughs> you managed to get many things, but that was definitely one of the things you got through. That was in your last few days there, yeah? Uh, no, actually, that came through almost as a direct result of the first COVID lockdown. So um, so that was something I started pushing like the day I arrived in government. I was like, mm. well, this is what you need. You want to play in this space, rebates. Everyone offers rebates and Australia's expensive. So rebates on top of rebates. Um and just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And eventually during lockdown, the government was sort of casting around for 
what do we have that we could announce? And it's like, you know, those kids playing video games in their bedrooms right now. What if that wasn't a bad thing? What if that was the future economy? And they're like, oh, tell me more. And then I had to, then I had to tie it into submarines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's only but, when but it's, eventually it, yeah, it got there. Yeah. It's only when it's really like gone to shit that they're like, now tell me, now tell me how to fix this, or tell yeah. me what else is out there. Yeah, I know. I know at least one um, senior person in government who um, who was dead against it, and the feedback was like, "Well, think of something else then. Like, you don't want us to do this. Mm. What's the alternative? What else have you got? But because we need to announce something." Yeah. How much is? Um, there's a bit to this question. So, how first part of the question would be how much is this like a government bureaucracy across the board, and how much is it? South Australian government bureaucracy and Australian, because when you're looking at, because um, talking about startups and video games and stuff like that, but startups in Australia, right? The term unicorn, right? So a company mm. that's reached a billion dollars in value. Adelaide mm. has none of them, but Melbourne has like seven and Perth has one. And we're like one of the only states, I think, that have none. And you look at the top viable ones the ones that are getting close to being considered nearly a unicorn they're all services well most of them are services that can are partnered with the government mm-hmm. whereas uh like an idea like canva for example just does not seem to be would not be an adelaide idea because it would be seen as too risky you're you're trying to sell a product straight to a customer rather than partnering with the government like there seems to be a a mentality here of um the government should be the ones uh, funding it, or not should be, but they're the mm. most viable option. Is that because that's how it's done in other states or is that an Australian thing? I, I think to a certain extent, it's a mixture of all those things. I don't think it's uniquely South Australian. I tried to get a game startup going in, in Sydney and couldn't do it. Um, I tried to get a couple of things going and and had no interest. I, and to be fair, I, I didn't know what I was doing either, but there was nowhere for me to find out what I was doing. Um, Australians are very, very traditional old-fashioned boring investors like they i i think it's like a, it's a different flavor of greed if you take an american with 10 million dollars uh that american will go out there and invest in like 10 units of a million dollars each in the hope that one of them brings back 20 you know what i mean whereas if you give an australian investor with 10 million dollars they'll invest in something that's got a 7 to 10% return over the next 30 years and like they'll probably just bury it in land um, and that's a huge problem. Like there's, there's no hunger in the upper end of the Australian town. Like they, they don't need to be any richer. They don't care about being any richer. That's lovely and very Zen, but it doesn't help anybody else. And, uh, uh and there need to be more things out there to motivate that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's actually taking those, like the cash reserves that are there and just using them on things that can actually grow as opposed to, there, yeah, like you said, it's a huge amount of cash yield. reserves in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the Australian superannuation funds are some of the, the fattest pools of money in the world. Um, and it's why a lot of countries like Singapore are still very interested. France is very interested in Australia because we've got liquid capital. Just It's just there. Um, if the government really wanted innovation, all they'd have to do would be introduce some serious tax breaks on riskier investments. Um, but I don't think that, their friends are friends with those sorts of people. So uh, so I don't know how likely that's ever going to be. Yeah. yeah. Well, even recently, like um, like at the time of you were getting into government um, and we were looking at 
any kind of funding. Any kind of funding that was offered around the place for games. Well, that would it. I'll just stop right there. There was no funding, um, any kind of <laughs> arts funding. They were mm. like, the websites look like they're designed to not make sense. So you, you go, look, I'm just going to call them. And they go, okay, what's your idea? You're like, we're making a game. They go, going to stuff you right there. We can't find anything that's going to make money. And you're like, well, what are you doing? Like, yeah. Yeah. A speech, that was my response. I was like, uh, like, what? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's, I mean, that's the most, that's a fair response. Like if, if you throw up a little bit, that's that's reasonable. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the problem with games as well. It's the problem with film um, in Australia is is we treat it like art and then we don't fund it. Um, mm. And then we punish it if it wants to be business. Uh, <laughs> whereas like successful, a film is too expensive for it to be art by itself. It needs to have bums on seats to pay for it. Otherwise you don't make you know, really big movies. Um, you make isolated stuff for a very small audience, um, and that's that's wonderful. But it doesn't build careers. Um, games are the same. Like you want to be an art dev studio and just do games as art. You can you can do that because the price point is, to get into it is actually quite low. But the flip side is like if you want to make something commercial, then games is an amazing industry that is really only just starting to take off. Um, and, and that was one of the government like arguments that worked was, was look at the way that these trends are going, you know, look at the way that, uh, machine learning is evolving. A lot of that is based and a lot of those machine learning algorithms, they start training them in video games. Um, Mm. look at the way that our training sector is going. They've realized that the game mechanics and gamified learning are the best way to learn something. Uh, look at the way that design is happening. Look at the way that now look at the way that the fashion industry and automotive is getting into Fortnite, for God's sake. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Like the metaverse, which is the new buzzword of, of at least the next couple of years, um, is built in game engine and it is powered by users moving around and playing games and doing game related activities. Um, and if we want to sit that out, that's fine. But then, I don't know. We should really start like going full Amish, I guess, because there's no much other alternative. <laughs> yeah. What do you What do you think if you you know if you had if the government had an earpiece, they were listening to what you you had to say, and they were following what you said? What do you think needs to change in order for that to happen, or in order for state or national government to start looking at it more seriously, start making changes? Yeah. Look, I think to a certain extent they already have. The, the federal rebate that was announced is huge. That's a huge deal. Um, the state government rebate that still exists technically needs to practically exist and they need to actually start advertising it um, because a 40% rebate on expenditure is attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, Adelaide has natural uh, benefits compared to Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. Um, there's a lot to offer here, but nobody's actually selling it. Um, and, and that's complicated, but, um, but look, once you start to bring in the big end of town, that's where you start to get immediate economic benefit. That's where you start to get your, your people getting employment, you know, young people want to stay around because there are jobs here, small businesses start up, you end up with, you know, uh, uh, gamer cafes and stuff like that. And, and the economy sort of builds around that. Um, and that's great. At the same time, if you ignore the bottom end of town, if you're not supporting small independent development, if you're not helping uh, 
homegrown IP and, and locally owned business come up, then you end up just doing what they did with the car industry, which is employing like a whole bunch of people as employees with zero business owners. And when the dollar changes, everybody disappears and we're screwed again. So yeah. it's got to be from both sides. Um, trade and investment allowed me to do a lot of work from the top end of town, uh, but I was very interested in how we could help from the, the bottom. It's just that there are other people in that space who think that they should be the ones helping and they'd rather be the ones helping and not you be the ones helping, even if they don't know how to help. <laughs> it's a control thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Having, having come from Sydney and moved, how many years ago did you move now? Uh, three years. Three years. What's, what's a, what are the major differences you see specifically in the creative industry or in the creative space? And obviously, you mentioned earlier that you've, that you tried to get something funded in Sydney when you had your own uh, business. Mm. What's, yeah, what's the differences there between the two states? Um, well, dealing with the government, there was no real difference. Um, like, yeah, uh, Screen New South Wales were not interested or helpful and Screen Australia, yeah, I've already talked about what went on there. Um, whereas dealing with the SAFC here, I feel like you've got more chance to be heard. Um, Kate Crozer and her team are interested in supporting the sector. It's it's just they don't have much in the way of finance and what they do have is generally spoken for years in advance um, or at least it's planned for, if you know what I mean, um, which is why this games rebate thing is such an interesting situation. But um, in terms of actually living here and working with people and dealing with other creatives, um, you get a lot of the same kinds of people all over. Uh, you get... Uh, your your mini dictators and tyrants um, and and your fragile egos, um, but I've got to say, like, it feels like the the independent game scene here, and um, and I don't know the indie film scene as well, but the people that I've met who uh, who cross my path seem to be really really open and genuine and keen. Uh, most of the young people who are still here as they as they get good at whatever their chosen profession is, they tend to have made that choice to be here and therefore they're dedicated in trying to grow something here. So um, so that's that's a real strength and uh, and there's huge potential in South Australia. I I believed it before I moved here and since arriving, I've, I've got no reason to doubt it. Um, I do feel like there's a little bit of like Adelaide, Adelaide is harsh on Adelaide. Um, when I said to people in Sydney, oh, I'm thinking of moving to Adelaide, the universal response was like, oh, yeah, cool. Adelaide seems really cool. You know, Fringe is awesome. Um, I was there recently. They've got these really nice bars, yada, yada, yada. Like it was, everyone was like, oh, yeah, cool. Go to Adelaide. Um, whereas like my Uber from the airport was like, oh, you're coming the wrong way. And it's like, <laughs> dude, what are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> Stop um, talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, and there was that sort of, yeah, I don't know. And you see it in the politicians as well. I've heard. I've heard not quite the same politician, but I've heard someone spin around and be like, oh, look, what are we going to do to try and attract, why would any of these big companies ever want to come to South Australia? And it's like, well, they'll come if we pay them um, and offer them these levels of support. And then they'll turn around and be like, oh, look, I think South Australia is pretty awesome. They'll probably just come anyway. It's like, yeah. well, well, which which is it? Are we are we either don't have a chance of, of securing one, or we don't need to try? Like, um, but it's that sort of fragility that's um, it's it's weird, and 
it's sort of endearing um, when it's not really just shooting me to tears. <laughs> What's the other that thing f- that they usually say? It's like, like oh, it's a saying people always say around uh, people growing in Adelaide and you never get past a certain point because everyone shoots you down. I, I don't know what the saying is, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, around like that. Around, poppy thing. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. The tall poppy yeah, syndrome and, and, and that. And it, you're yeah. right. Like it's, we're, I think we're a bit confused as to what we want to <laughs> focus on or what we think of ourselves here in Adelaide. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, tall poppy is Australian. Um, I had mm. it in Brisbane. Um, yeah, you get it everywhere. Um, and yeah, and it's usually it's usually another poppy that wants to be tall that's swinging the axe. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. I think South Australia worries too much about it. Um, it's like this this is a great city. Uh, but you've got to remember that if you're talking to a AAA game studio, then they're looking at Adelaide, they're looking at Melbourne, they're probably also looking at you know Houston, and they'll be looking at Rio de Janeiro, and they'll be looking at Madrid, and they'll be looking at Copenhagen. So, mm-hmm. so it's like, what have we got compared to all them? And suddenly we've got a nice beach and good wine. It's like, well, so does Bordeaux, and I could just set up there. So you know, what what else have you got? It's like, oh, oh. Sh- um and it's like that's a that's legitimate concern the only thing is everywhere else has already got game studios and australia is this great untapped wilderness of uh of talent that has mm. yet to be um drawn upon or at least or at least that's how i used to sell it yeah <laughs> even even Sydney like, doesn't uh, have a giant stainless steel pigeon though <laughs> <laughs> that is I ours mean, and you can't have it yeah. even mm-hmm. the films industry right like it's so many vfx powerhouses in in south australia um and we don't in australia make these well try to make these big blockbuster films you know yeah so much of it goes on and so much so much of the post-production happens in south Mm -hmm. australia it's yeah it's just bizarre yeah well the talent's here like uh, australians when australians get their head out of their ass australians are very (laughs) creative um and they're they're very productive and they're very very like a focused and and they've got the right level of attention to detail while also being slighty enough to just just get a project finished um and that's a great thing like that's you see australians rising all over the world australians as business people australians as supervisors australians as creatives succeed way out of proportion to our population size um but they're the ones who sort of escape through it um and and i think that's sort of the wrong way of looking at it is like Australians who succeed move overseas and do these amazing things. It's a, screw that. Why can't we have the next Disney come out of Australia? You know, why can't we have uh, something massive that we're doing? Um, but the thing is, I think for a large part, you're going to have to ignore the government and just get it done anyway. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's always a tying theme that we always find when we talk about is, how games isn't any like any other industry. It's probably closest to film, but it's all passion driven. You mm-hmm. go home and you'll make a game or play a game, but you won't go home and work on a business development plan or something like that. Like <laughs> yeah. your career yeah. and your life are so intertwined. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but to be fair, winemakers are probably pretty similar. <laughs> um, you know, um, there, there are other places out there that have the same thing. But then that was the other thing. If you wanted to, if you want to sell a bottle of wine or a bottle of gin or a block of chocolate 
um, there are departments in the government that are designed and know exactly how to help you enter new markets, negotiate deals. You know, they're there to, to introduce you to people that own distribution in different territories, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing like that for games. Um, yeah. And most of the conversations I had with Austrade and with the international representatives of Australia, um, a large part of that was getting them to understand the size of the industry, the potential of the industry. It was more like, you know, wake up and, and games are good. And they're like, wow, games are good. And now what? And by then I'd already gone. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Even stuff like um, uh, Costano, I'm talking about with this, uh, like marketing. Marketing agencies around the joint don't even know games. I was yeah. We're talking to someone about, you know, how to market our game. And they're like, what you got to do is you got to go to Coca-Cola, all right? And <laughs> you get you, you give them promotional codes, everyone who buys a Coke. But no, he's explicitly saying every kid who buys a Coke gets this code. I'm like, all right, I'm going to stop you there. There is so much wrong with what you just said that and why it won't <laughs> yeah. work. One, we aren't EA, uh, so we can't get Coke just to, yeah, chuck some codes on the bottle of your on the side of your bottle. Uh, two, you're, you're, you're talking about marketing towards kids with soft drinks. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I think we have rules already in place where we can't do that now. Um, yeah, so even even just another creative outlet of marketing, yeah. just games are still such an enigma. Yeah. Can I say, like, three, if you give a free code to everyone that drinks Coke, you don't actually have any customers left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the marketing like, strategy there? That's yeah, yeah. Okay. Great. Everyone knows what we are, and we've got no one left to sell it to. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know what the, yeah. their plan was. Yeah. No, no, but that's that's it's a good point because there just isn't enough understanding in Australia about how to how to do mm-hmm. the business of games. Um, the legacy legacy industries of Australia, you know, steel, wool, <laughs> uranium, um, various other things that we dig out of the ground, uh, which you know, we moved on. We used to be sheep, so it was things that were on the ground, and then we moved into things inside the ground, and now it's kind of like ground. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just the real estate. Just the ground, uh, yeah. yeah it's, like, it's like, what else is there? So, oh, my God, are we not trying any harder than this? Um, Australians are very good at creative stuff. We don't just – we don't take it seriously. So, uh, yeah. so no one takes us seriously. Yeah. We could try so, selling the water. Yeah. <laughs> That's the next step. Um, to – Talk to us about uh, your role now at CDW. I mean, whatever you can mm. reveal from what's going on there, and what's what's sort of the the overarching um, goal there, or the strategy with with this new um, studio side of things. Uh, sure. So, um, so so CDW Studios is about ten years old as a business, and um, Simon Scales founded it. He still owns it, and he grew it from you know from nothing uh, from a couple of evening classes. Uh, into almost 400 students going through there now. Uh, you know, we've got, yeah, so many classes going through. We've just expanded. Uh, so we've doubled our footprint. We've taken out the whole of Level 4 of the Maya Centre um, in Rundle Mall. And, um, and that gives us eight classrooms. We've currently got two life drawing rooms. We've got a 3D printing room, a function space. Um, but uh, but the, the really exciting thing and the reason that I was brought on board is... Um, the reason CW Studios keeps winning international awards and, and getting recognition from places like the Rookies is because all their teaching staff come from industry and they have that industry experience. So um, 
so Simon realized he had a whole bunch of industry experienced artists lying around, um, not lying around, like sounds like they're all on chivons, you know, <laughs> rub, rubbing baby oil on themselves. Um, but, uh, but he had them um, and they're only teaching for a certain portion of the time. So they started just developing their ideas in the way that artists do when you stick them in a room. It's like, oh yeah, look at this drawing. It's like, oh, what if, what if this guy fought that guy and, you know, bouncing ideas off each other, um, drawing environments and, um, and it evolved to a point where they actually had quite a, a nice looking, uh, concept short. Um, and Simon decided to push hard on that. So I came on board about six or seven months now to, um, to run the production side of the business and flesh that out. So, uh, so mostly what I'm doing is I'm looking at uh, partnership opportunities with um, with other players in the space. Uh, it might be game developers or or animation studios or uh, producers. Um, Moonsinger is the original IP that we're focused on right now, uh, and we're in talks with you know a showrunner in LA who's well connected at Netflix, um, and there are other opportunities uh, there through through some of mine and Simon's contacts. But there's so much demand for content right now that that it feels like just the right time to be trying to push this through. At the same time, you know, Netflix is moving into games, um, so we might be able to package something up there. Uh, we took a, an a interesting approach with the with this 3D animated TV series of deciding to do it through Unreal, um, and uh, and still give it that toony, you know, anime look, um, and using techniques like we're animating on twos for a lot of it. Um, so it's got that real sharp you know, uh, uh, yeah, Spider-Verse kind of look. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got a fairly unique sort of offering, uh, but we've done it in engine. So we've got the assets already in engine. Mm. So why not just get some people in and start, you know, developing the game at the same time? And I think that's where Netflix is going as well. It's like if we can develop the series and develop the game simultaneously and have narrative crossover that doesn't uh, conflict with each other and complements each other, uh, then you've actually got a really strong offering. Um, so that's that's sort of part of what I'm working on, um, as well as all the, the usual stuff I do, which is just like sniff around for what's coming next. Um, yeah. You know, so NFT gaming, it's like, ooh, what's that mean? Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, there are opportunities in that side of things uh, that, that we're continuing to explore. What, what are your thoughts on this NFT gaming stuff? I, actually... <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's potentially awesome. I don't think it's been done hugely well so far um yeah. i mean i think like uh what is it unchained the the immor- God's unchained. immortals yeah. uh, immutable the guys in sydney um i think that's quite cool um i'm not into to card games so much but i think that's a really strong way of doing it um and then i think like zed run with the horse racing mm. that's really interesting um but then a lot of them they're like, oh yeah, we've built a metaverse, we've built NFT gaming, we've got all this gaming world, and you go into it, and it's it's actually just a, a scattering of assets and art pieces, but there is no, there's no narrative, there's no yeah. game mechanic yeah. attached to it. It's it's just empty art. Yeah. Um, so it's really in its infancy. Uh, like this is literally the same as having the original uh, movies, you know, the black and white like hand cranked stuff where what are we looking at? We're looking at a guy with a horse and everyone's like, Oh my God, the horse is moving. It's like, yeah. Imagine what happens when we actually know how to tell a story with this. Um, That's where we are now with NFT gaming. Like it's, it's got a great future ahead of it. Um, It, there's a lot of hot air around at the moment and there's always going to be that side of things. But, uh, but the technology itself is too strong to ignore. 
and it's it's interesting because yeah, like you mentioned, it, it's it's probably all of the more NFT people and the bubble coming mm. into it, trying to say trying to brand it as gaming as opposed to the game developers coming out. Like you know, Gods Unchained is a is a really great example of it, yeah. and it's come from a game. I think I can't remember who the lead on that was, but he, he's someone. It was someone that um, has had a lot of game design experience and background at, at a couple of different companies. So yeah, yeah. it'll be interesting to see once we see the game developers come at it from that perspective, yeah, um, as opposed to the other the other side of things. Yeah, well, that's where you get like Axie Infinity, which um, which is I can't remember how many billion they're turning over, but um, but they're doing all right. Um, <laughs> so uh, so yeah. Uh, games people are so funny we get so precious about the weirdest things like people get really precious about it's like oh you know i really i really think that it has to be you know 16 bit in order to be properly retro otherwise it's like it doesn't count um and people get hung up on definitions of stuff or they get a knickers in a twist about some new tech or some this or that it's like that's that's funny and endearing but they're usually not business leaders um, and they're not the ones that make the profit on the next wave. They're the ones that who they wait until Fortnite has made billions of dollars. And then they're like, Oh, okay. Maybe the free to play market can make money, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and, and talk to us a little bit about, uh, I know you mentioned you just, the, you're the person who's running out doing the business dealings for, um, golden age studios but uh, what's what's the sort of vision with that and and how do you actually how much of your time do you sort of balance between um the two both cdw and and golden age yeah well i've got to say it's grossly unfair to golden age um my time balance between the two it's 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 very heavily slanted to cdw studios um which is fair enough because simon pays me for 40 hours a week of my time um (laughs) but uh golden age for me, like Ants is doing an amazing job running his team. He knows what the game needs to look like. He knows what it needs to feel like, and and he's a very hands-on, creative, you know, director and producer. And uh, and I think that's great. Like I, when I first partnered with him, I thought I would have more producing stuff to do, but actually, Ants is doing it, and he's better at doing it because he's he's got the time and the dedication and the vision. So so he just does that, and that's awesome. Um, the vision for the studio is is probably more along the lines of that Disney thing I said before. Um, you know, it's I'm always looking for opportunities, and and there are a lot of opportunities out there. Like, there's a lot of demand for content. Uh, I could see Tinker and Spell is an amazingly strong product, uh, which is why I wanted to partner with Ants, and I will have absolutely no trouble selling that. You know, in the future, it's more about selling it to whom and for what further ends. Cause I don't just want to find a publisher who can, who can pay marketing expenses and then take a fair chunk of the ticket. I'd like to find someone who strategically will help us get to another place. And that's a much more difficult conversation. Um, and, and in that way, my job with, with both CDW and golden age and what I was doing with government is very much based on, you know, relationships and uh, convincing people that, that there is a future, here and they just need to be getting on board at this stage because this is where it's going to make the most sense but um but golden age is still finding its way um once we've got a finished or very close to finished product um i'll be able to start pushing it out there and seeing where some of these these leads and conversations that i've started which ones are really viable which ones are really interested and, and which ones are just being polite 
Yeah. Is that a um a, a thought a fourth? I don't even say it. A thought on the mind with Golden Age of keeping them in South Australia and using that as a as an example. Basically, if you can, what you're saying is like this metaverse kind of thing of saying mm. we can do it and we can do it here. Like they'd be a prime example. Is that something that's definitely on the mind? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if Golden Age. I mean, Tinker and Spell is an amazing product. We're definitely. When I say metaverse, I'm not referring to like an expanded story world, like the way that Marvel Disney does their storytelling with the movies and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the tie-in comic books and the TV shows and Disney Plus all coming into this golden ball of, of transmedia of cash. Yeah, that, that transmedia approach. <laughs> um, metaverse is more about a way of interacting with content that that maybe you don't even own. So mm. it's more about like the, the the way I think of the metaverse is more like the way I would think of an internet browser as opposed to yeah. a content play. You know, it's it's more like it's a themed, yeah, Facebook is, is naturally positioned to take advantage of this yeah. because Facebook is already a portal through which you experience other content. Netflix could make a play to it um, and I'm sure that they will and I'm sure they're pushing the gaming might have something to do with that. Um, Amazon will push into it. You know, these are the, the big players who already have the content and they're looking for a way to amalgamize it and, and basically making a digital Disney World situation where you can dip into Pirates of the Caribbean over here and Star Wars over there. That's the way that the, the metaverse is spoken about that makes any sense to me. Um, mm. Although I used to argue about, is it AR or VR? You know, is it is it sixed <sighs> off and three, all these conversations. And then virtual production, we had the same thing of everyone arguing about definitions because everyone wants to own the definition. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, no was the short answer there. Uh, Golden Age isn't really <laughs> looking at metaverse type play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But is it is a... Um, is there like a desire to stay in South Australia or? Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I tore my children out of uh, primary school and, and <laughs> threw them into school here um, and we've got a, a high school picked out for them. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we're keen on sticking around um, at least, you know, at least until the kids finish high school and then we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, because that's, that's what I was feeling. It was like, um, uh, yeah, because... Tinker and Spell and Golden Age, you know, it's just such a strong thing, but it, it, it could be a really good, um, like, launch pad for mm-hmm. other creatives coming up so that we can do it in South Australia and keep it here sort of thing. But yeah. at the same time, not a uh, keeping you hostage, you know, if it's fared off better somewhere else than that too, you know. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned sort of making these, like, real difficult decisions um, or, you know, in the context of uh, Tinker and Spell finding the right, person to sell to mm. and the right uh, what, what was the word you used it was kind of like what the right uh, approach would be or yeah was it the S- right strategic partner strategic or... partner right like what what yeah. feeds into when you make those decisions and obviously you're making them now at cdw at golden age you made them at state government mm. like what sort of yeah feeds into that um i'm always looking for like the deal that that we're negotiating has to work by itself. But then ideally a strategic partnership is one that's going to lead on to, uh, to something more. Um, so, uh, so for example, uh, trying to think of an example to say that doesn't shoot me in the foot because I'm already talking to somebody. Um, <laughs> in the old days, if you were talking to MySpace and Facebook, uh, and they were both interested in your marketing company. 
um, then the deal from MySpace might involve more cash, but you could see the future with Facebook looked more interesting. So you might go with Facebook as a better strategic partner kind of thing. Um, that involves looking at like, how does Facebook work? How does MySpace work? Where, are, where do they say that they want to be? And that will allow you to decide which is the best one to partner with. This stuff always changes. It's easy to get it wrong, but it is just about like, it's no guaranteed outcomes. It's just stacking the deck and then moving forward with um, with as much confidence as you can muster. And and um, those, uh, what's my train of thought there? I was going to say around like those decisions that are getting made. Um, have you come across like what are some common ones that you've seen where they've just gone wrong? You know, like is it like game studios you came across, or or even yeah, in in your career, have you have you been in that situation where it's like these deals have gone wrong? You don't have to say details or anything, but you know things that have happened in your career around that. Yeah. Yes, I can say that we. I've definitely been involved in businesses that have partnered with the wrong people. Um, I got to say, the best example uh, that we could talk about is um, is actually Rupert Murdoch buying MySpace. Yeah, just before it tanked, um, <laughs> which which couldn't happen to a nicer fella. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you know that that sort of thing. It, it yeah, I've I've. I, yeah, even my games company back in the day, I think some of the, the partnerships that we made were not right, um, which is sort of why it all fell over in the end. Um, and, and yeah, neither of us were pushing the business. You know, Jimmy was working on his network and I was focused on the content um, and it just didn't work out. Um, so it, it is easy to get lost, especially if you, yeah, I don't know. Eventually, I'm, I'm now in a lucky position where I'm playing with other people's businesses. You know, I'm I'm hired by people like Simon um, or the state government to or Technicolor to help put things together. Um, but there's very little personal risk on that. Like, I check in. I'm good at client management, so it's like I'll check in. I'll tell you what I'm doing. Do you sign off on this? These are the risks that I can see. I think we should move in this direction, and and you either agree with me or you don't. But at the end of the day, it's it's your business and. And we do what you want. Um, Golden Age, I'm probably a little bit more defensive of, um, just because I do own part of it. Um, but also, I'm very aware that that like I've got this little um, this little sweatshop of uh, of juniors who are just grinding away at it, and and they're putting all their blood and sweat into it. Um, and yeah, I'd really like to be able to to, to handsomely reward all of them at some point. Mm, <laughs> um, and you know, I want to prove that I can do it with my own shop. Um, is obviously another thing. Yeah. What are the things you've uh, you've learned from from your own businesses that you're you're putting into Golden Age now? Uh, things that I've learned from my own businesses. So many things. Um, uh, when I used to work for Yahoo Seven as a lowly paid editor, um, I was working ridiculous hours, including like I raced to get all this content up in time for a midnight deadline because um, that's when our license expired on getting stuff live. So I put like, I don't know how many hours of content I whacked up onto the Yahoo 7 website that night. Um, but I was literally, I was racing while fireworks are going off around me on this um, studio sticking out into the Sydney Harbour. There's like a pontoon right in front of the building firing off and I'm like, ah, set it live, set it live. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but they were they were a terrible employer. Um, I don't even think they exist as a business anymore. But they would go <laughs> weeks without paying me, uh, um, sometimes months, and then they'd start paying you every week, and then they wouldn't pay you for another three months, and then they'd pay you every two weeks, and then they'd stop that's again. That's Channel Seven, right? Like, surely they'd have enough yeah, capital well, was, to pay you. Oh, it was fine. It was just there was yeah. someone that didn't like to process the uh, the payments. Um, uh. Uh, I just needed constant reminding, and and I had to say like I was there under special business conditions. I was a service provider and a business operator, so I was there invoicing them, and they're like, "Great, standard turnaround on an invoice is three months. Chuck it in the pile." And I was like, "I'm getting paid twenty five bucks an hour. Like, if you could just pay it now, please. Like, <laughs> I, I give you a twenty percent discount for cash." <laughs> I just kind of, <laughs> literally my 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 infant daughter needs to eat um yeah. and yeah and they weren't structured to accommodate that sort of thing so it wasn't entirely their fault i mean it wasn't entirely their fault it was it was me but i didn't know not to do that so um, <laughs> uh yeah um and i was talking to another guy this morning about like setting up your your contracts with a new client where it's got like, how many reviews at what points in time um you know, clear processes so you can see, okay, it's it's brief and sign off on payment and then you get to see like the alpha and then the beta before you sign off again and then there's another payment and then there's, you know, final release candidate and you get two more series of reviews with up to five days work in between and then I hand over everything, you give me the final payment and we give you, you know, three to 12 months of support on negotiation. Uh, like that sort of stuff is really simple and really clear. But I learned that the very hard way. Um, and uh, and I don't know why no one's teaching that because that's yeah. real fundamental and really easy to grasp once somebody's told it to you. Um, yeah. yeah. That's just it's better if someone tells it. Yeah, yeah it, it is. It's just it's, it's better if someone tells it to you beforehand rather than if someone's telling it to you over a beer as you'd like commiserate <laughs> over all that money that you lost. You know. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of creatives we don't like our education doesn't cover any kind of business and then in business it doesn't cover any kind of creative and there's yeah. no overlap. Yep. Yeah, it's sad. Um, <laughs> um it's sort of a open question and we sort of spoke a little bit about NFT gaming. But mm. and and this sort of will blend into to the last thing I want to we always ask our guests, but um, where do you see gaming going? And sort of double question, where should people be looking to position themselves? Let's say if they're an indie developer or um, even a, a even a, a smaller studio, like where should they position themselves to, to be able to, you know, succeed? Yeah. So I think, I mean, gaming is going... If you, if you look at film, again, like look at 1900 when people were being wowed by a cowboy um, pulling a gun and pointing it at the camera. Um, if we consider that, that 2021 is the year 1900, then over the next 60, 70 years, you're going to see like you're getting into um, digital screens and advertising, um, movies on airplanes. You know, if you go forward even further, it's the iPhone and and content on demand and personalized interactive content. Like gaming goes a hell of a lot faster than that because it's a lot more iterative and it's immediate with its user feedback. Um, so, uh, so the the answer is gaming is going to be everywhere. Um, it's going to continue to diversify, continue to change, um, but you'll still find like really simple twine type games 
are being successful, you know, it the the secret to selling content is to make sure that your budget matches your audience size. So if you want to sit there and build a twine game by yourself and you earn 80 grand from it, congratulations, that's a good full-time job, you know. Whereas if you hire a hundred developers and put them in a room and you make 80 grand, you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it just comes down to, to like, what do you want to do? Who do you want to be? You want to make little art pieces and be like that artisan game maker. You can do that. You just need to position yourself in the right way and be a little bit smart about it. You want to make AAA stuff. It's a lot harder and you need to build investor confidence to get up to it. But, but you can do that. Um, NFT gaming is going to open up a lot of investment potential, probably not from Australia so much, but definitely from overseas. Um, and like when I had our games company had an exclusive license to the NRL for children's content, and I could not find an investor to save our lives. Like no one wanted to talk to us. Um, whereas if I had that now, you know, I'd, I'd call Brad Manuel or somebody and, and we just, we'd be on, it'd be fine. Um, Talking to companies locally, like I had a conversation with a potential investor uh, for Golden Age and his immediate follow-up was like, oh, I've got some people in Singapore that I'd like to introduce you to. But that's it. He's not talking to his buddies in Sydney or Melbourne or wherever. He's talking to the international community because he knows that there's not much point talking to the people here. Mm. NFT will change that slowly as enough money starts to circulate in enough other places. As people figure out a way of making it understandable, for, you know, Koshi on Sunrise to talk about. Um, that's that's the tipping point. Um, and when that sort of happens, uh, yeah, it'll it'll open up a lot of avenues for a lot of people to, to start selling their content and getting investment and government programs to assist with that sort of thing. Um, but in terms of where to position yourself, if, if you're just starting out and you're looking at where to position yourself in sort of five to 10 years' time, then I'd strongly recommend you, you look into NFTs, uh, read about machine learning, figure out how those two things might work together, um, read into the metaverse, you know, and look at the way that user interactions uh, through places like, you know, the Epic Store and Fortnite, you know, how do, how do those things occur? Um, and figure out if any of that's of any interest to you, just keep reading and, you know, and keep, because chances are the thing that's going to make you successful in say five or 10 years time probably doesn't exist right now. So all you have to do is just, just look at where, um, where the waves are going and, and make sure you're looking behind you to see what's coming up next and just sort of position yourself so that when the right one comes along for you, you're able to, to catch it and you'll miss a couple and you'll stuff up, you know, but, um, but you just got to try it again and eventually you'll, you'll win through. Also, I firmly hope and believe. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess, you know, that, that blends into the, the question we always ask our guests at the end, but what's the uh, bit of advice you'd give to our listeners, aspiring developers or people wanting to get into the games industry? Uh, it feels like those are almost three separate groups, but um, <laughs> just just stick with it. Like, just don't give up. Um, it doesn't matter what your parents insinuate over the Christmas table or whether your uncle who's in real estate thinks you're an idiot. Um, just 
like you were never going to be happy happy being those people anyway. Otherwise, you'd already be doing it. So just trust in yourself. Keep going forward. Um, try and partner with like-minded people. Talk to people. You know, uh, petition the government. You know, write letters to people like the SAFC and demand more support. Write to Personi, who writes the checks that fund the SAFC, um, and demand more support. And tell them what you want. Like, if you want more development grants for independent developers who are up and coming, then then write that and send it in. Start petitions. No one's no one's active enough in this space. Uh, it's very hard. To, to shout up and down in a room full of politicians about how South Australia has this amazing games ecosystem and then not be able to point to, you know, more than the handful of known successes that we have. Um, fortunately, gamers also have a reputation for, like, sitting in their parents' basement and playing video games and not being very social. So that kind of offsets it a bit. But if everyone was a lot more vocal, it would be a hell of a lot easier to, to get stuff going. Yeah, yeah. we just got to start a Discord channel. <laughs> not discord like if i say discord to a politician they they assume i'm talking about something it's either in music or i'm starting a rebellion um, <laughs> what, what do you need to yeah. mention to the politicians what, what would uh, they understand they they still think facebook's the up-and-coming thing um oh, they, they've heard of instagram but they think it involves butts and they're scared um <laughs> Do we need to send them like written letters or something? Is, is that going to get through <laughs> <Yeah>. to them? <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah. you do. Written letters. Because if you send a letter to a politician, their office will send you a response. So somebody somewhere Ooh. has read it. Oh, wow. It's, it's enough confirmation really advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a black van outside my house. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for coming on. Um, where can people find you, James? Uh, LinkedIn, I'm always on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, or uh, or email me uh, james.marshall at cdwstudios.com. I'm on the Adelaide Game Developer Discord or um, or drop by Level 4 of the Maya Center. And if I've got time, I'm always happy to have a chat. That's awesome. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you. Great. Thank Thanks you, very much, guys.